Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. If there is one thing that best describes the current state of our culture, it would have to be fear. We are enveloped in a culture of fear. But forget the fear of hate, absolutist aggression, terrorism, or even the potential of a new pandemic. The fear gripping the hearts of many within public health is fear of nicotine. Joining us today to discuss this unsettling affliction and what to do about it is Charles Gardner, a tenacious supporter of safer nicotine products and expert in the machinations of public health. Charles, it's great to have you back on the show. Good to see you again, Brent. It's always our pleasure. So Charles, you published an article recently on Medium titled, Is it Time to De-Demonize This Drug? It's an excellent walkthrough of prohibitionist tactics and tendencies over the past century. Let's start with today. Is nicotine being demonized by public health? It is my strong impression that nicotine is now more demonized than alcohol, cannabis, heroin, cocaine, possibly even opioids. It's um, which is a little strange if you think about it, Uh, possibly more demonized than all of them combined. So how did the war on smoking turn into a war on nicotine? Part of it's uh, laziness on the part of the people in tobacco control, uh, most of whom I I still respect. Uh, There has been over the past three, four decades, a tendency to uh, use the words smoking, tobacco, and nicotine as if they are synonyms, which made a little bit of sense uh, many decades ago when the main source uh, that anybody would you know, was getting nicotine from was a deadly combustible tobacco cigarette. Uh, doesn't make any sense now. It didn't make any sense as soon as really snus came along. Um, so, that, but there's a there's a tendency to I'm always grasping for the right word here, but to think of there are toxic forms of tobacco. There's no question about that. But that to then think everything related to tobacco is as harmful as those toxic forms of tobacco and everything related to nicotine is as bad. And then there's also the demonization of the industry. Um, So basically anything they do, it must be bad because we know they did bad things in the past. I mean, they actually did in um, misinforming the public and, 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 and so on. And, you know, their products do kill people. So all of this gets in, in a kind of gamish. Uh, everybody is confused about nicotine. So, Charles, I'm taking it that demonization is actually a process, is it not? Yeah, that, that's what I, uh, I tried to touch on. You know, it's very briefly in, in the article, but it, this is a process we've gone through over and over again. So um, always around uh, a particular moral panic, uh, United States Americans, um, we love our moral panics. And we had a massive moral panic uh, in the, what would you call them, the, in the 1910 to 1920 period over alcohol. And a lot of the tactics that are used by prohibitionists were kind of honed to great perfection there. This is kind of like a playbook. A big one is obviously the the 
the innocence of our our children and and then you know the harms to women and in those days most people who were drinking were men uh women were less likely to drink would never go into a saloon and so then we get prohibition in uh 1920 and then there are speakeasies and speakeasies like totally changed the gender balance uh because they were full of men and women um and we finally uh since pretty much everybody in the country was drinking alcohol during prohibition and bottles of whiskey were you know regularly delivered to the senate uh offices in the capitol <laughs> well once a week uh everybody was thumbing their noses at this prohibition and so the united states rescinded it in uh, 1933, and then pivoted immediately to demonizing cannabis. So now alcohol is okay. We needed a new thing to fear. And this time it had really strong racial overtones. Cannabis was associated with those Mexicans and with black people and uh, bad behaviors and, and the mixing of the races uh, and so we get reefer madness, right? And it's, it's again, the same kind of tactics. This is a gateway to, you know, insert bad thing here is, is part of this kind of the standard playbook of prohibitionists and that it's, it's, you know, ruining the lives of, of our innocent angelic children. And we move on from that, that one lasts 90 years. It's kind of shocking. We had we dabbled with something called the great comic book scare in, in the 1950s. And there were hearings in Congress about how comic books were corrupting the minds and the, the lives of our children, the bright colors in the comic books. Um, it was all nonsense. And now we, we look upon comic books as being just innocent childhood memories. Um, we there's a little bit, uh, and you know now we're de-demonizing cannabis, but you know it's a slow process. And the thing that tilted that needle is actually that there are some health benefits. Um, and getting the voices of people who, uh, let's say, recovering from chemotherapy, to talk about their experience, this helps me. Uh, and they're not teens; they're like 50, 60 year old people. Um, there was less of a scare around psilocybin, you know, magic mushrooms, but we made that illegal in 1968. It's around, you know, the 60s. Everybody was doing drugs in the 60s, and it was kind of lumped into all of those drug fears. Um, and the thing um, that has always intrigued me with all of these is with cannabis, with psilocybin in particular, and I think also with nicotine, how that colors and tilts and changes the research priorities around these, they're all psychoactive drugs. Often we heard with regard to cannabis is that uh, governments didn't allow research funding to go to institutions to do proper research on the benefits of cannabis. And that's obviously changed in this kind of transition to de-demonizing cannabis. But with nicotine, I've heard recently we've had on our show people who have said that there is some struggle to get research 
funded for the benefits of nicotine. It almost sounds like the old, bad old days with cannabis. It kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, if, if 90% of your research is focused on finding harms, uh, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, um, then you're going to find harms. And if very little of your research is focused on uh, exploring potential health benefits, then you're not going to find, you're just not going to learn that. The the psilocybin story is the one that really intrigues me because uh, from 1968, when it was made illegal, to very recently, only in the past 10 years, no research was allowed. And uh, which means that what we're finding now um, could have been discovered three decades ago. And so I think, you know, with nicotine, it's the same thing. It's really important to think about the priorities um, that advocates and activists had during the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. Right at the top of their list was changing research priorities. And that's something we we talk about sometimes in the tobacco harm reduction field, but um, it needs to be moved up in our in our priority list. Um, and you know, it, this goes back to uh, Larry Kramer calling Tony Fauci a murderer um, just like thirty years ago because the research priorities were wrong on HIV/AIDS. In the same way, our research priorities on nicotine are wrong. Now, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, So, for example, the National Institutes of Health has invested over $10 million to test uh, nicotine patches for people with early onset dementia because nicotine is neuroprotective, certainly reduces Parkinson's disease, um, and probably maybe um basically nih would not have invested 10 million dollars if the evidence wasn't already very strong so this is a final kind of proof of proof of principle proof of concept uh of of the effectiveness um it's a big investment and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of studies in the literature but it's um on nicotine's health effects For, for example weight control parkinson's Lots of neurodiversity issues. How does research on recreational drugs or therapeutic drugs, uh, however you want to frame that, but nicotine specifically, how does research affect public perception? Here I'm going to go out on a limb and say, uh, because I think I can say this fairly, and I, I think a lot of people would agree with me, because I've, I've worked most of my career on topics like HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, dengue, child nutrition issues. Stuff. So I'm, I'm 30 years of my career, I'm reading scientific journals. Um, and, you know, not every peer-reviewed publication is solid. I just expect that. And you learn to look for, you know, where they might have misinterpreted the results, blah, blah, blah. You know, tobacco control, it, it, the field is so full of junk science right now. All of it's well-funded um, because in the United States in particular, actually according to a study that hasn't been published, but was conducted by somebody 
quite senior in the National Institutes of Health. The U.S. Um, accounts for about 85% of all of the tobacco control research on earth. And that's due to the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement of 20 years ago. That And so the tobacco companies have to give money to FDA and the FDA gives money to the National Institutes of Health for this kind of research. The research is driven by the FDA's regulatory priorities and it's prioritized toward finding harms. So you can imagine there's an army of researchers out there who have been doing research on deadly combustible tobacco cigarettes and suddenly along come these potentially safer nicotine alternatives. So they all get grants to you know, use the same methodologies and, and study those things. And of course, they've, they're going to find or invent harms. The field is full of junk science now. And so extrapolating to humans from studies in mice or rats, um, studies that don't, uh, don't have proper controls, uh, uh, studies that draw causal inferences from cross-sectional surveys that cannot possibly show cause and effect. It's, uh, and all of this gets funded and all of it gets published in peer-reviewed journals. Let me ask you, Charles, is nicotine benign? Well, it's a mild stimulant, but so is caffeine. Someone who has a severe heart condition, uh, that person's doctor should tell them, don't drink caffeine, don't take caffeine, um, and, and avoid nicotine as well. Um, otherwise, I have a, a thought experiment I often suggest, uh, which is, what would happen if we put every adult on earth on nicotine patches every day for the rest of their lives? What would happen? Well, I can tell you right away, smoking rates would drop. Nicotine increases focus, attention, and memory, and improves. It's a performance-enhancing drug. That is actually, it's if you're tested for drugs and you're in the Olympics and there's nicotine in your system, that's fine. Nobody cares. And but what what else would happen? Parkinson's disease rates would drop about 60 percent worldwide. And probably Alzheimer's and other aging dementias would drop. And then a whole raft of what uh, are called neurodiversity conditions, symptoms would drop. So here we're talking among adults. We're uh, talking about ADHD and autism and bipolar disorder and Tourette's syndrome and schizophrenia. Uh, rates of epilepsy would drop. Rheumatoid arthritis would drop. Uh, ulcerative colitis symptoms would drop. And that's an extremely painful disease. And all the majority of this is backed up by dozens of studies that have just tested nicotine patches. I often wonder why the pharmaceutical industry doesn't take its nicotine replacement therapies like patches, nicotine gum, and get them approved for other, um, for other conditions. And I, I think part of it's just that nicotine can't be patented and you, you really can't make a lot of money on it. But I think the other thing is that nicotine is so demonized 
They just don't want to go there. It appears to me that the very people that demonized cannabis, now not the same people, but the same trajectory, the same people who demonized alcohol, then demonized cannabis, then demonized psilocybin, that now have flipped on both of those drugs and are very much behind recreational use of cannabis and maybe even psilocybin are the ones that are actually demonizing nicotine. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that's a that's a puzzle to a lot of us. The very same people um, who want to legalize those drugs are all in on the demonization of nicotine, which is ironic because it's already a legal drug, right? It's it's on the World Health Organization's essential medicines list. It's approved uh, by the Food and Drug Administration and nicotine patches, nicotine gum, nicotine, and now recently nicotine lozenges and nicotine inhalers are available in every pharmacy over the counter in America and Canada, right? And uh, and the FDA says that those products are not dependence forming or subject to abuse. Uh, the CDC is full on with those products, uh, pointing out that they don't cause cancer, don't cause heart disease, don't cause lung disease. Uh, and actually the CDC calls them medical nicotine. It's the same pharmaceutical grade nicotine that's used in nicotine vapes and nicotine pouches. It's there's, there's not a lot of logical thinking going on right now in the field of tobacco control. So how does any of this square with the fear machine around nicotine? Well, the fear machine is, we have the, the end result of several decades of tobacco control messaging so that now 80% of American physicians believe that nicotine causes cancer and heart disease and lung disease. Because they used these words as synonyms, tobacco, smoking, nicotine, as if it's all the same thing. Um, so if four out of five doctors are that profoundly misinformed, think about the public and what, what are those doctors telling the public? What does the public think or know? Well, the, it's, um, it's, it's interesting that the FDA has been talking about, how, yes, we know, that the public is, in, in fact, I think there's one quote from Brian King saying 90% of the public is misinformed about nicotine. Okay. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Their concern is that they want adult smokers to be better informed. That, okay, nicotine is not the thing that kills you. It's all the other crap that's in a in cigarette smoke. Uh, but they want to make sure that Teens don't hear that. That's their their concern. And I think there's some interesting ethical issues around truth-telling that aren't really being explored and should be explored by a bioethicist there. Uh, we want to tell adults the truth, but we don't want teens to learn that. And kind of let that sink in. Charles, you posted a cash offer challenge last year on X, formerly known as Twitter, for, and quote, proof of one verified human death from inhaling nicotine vapor over the past 20 years. So the idea here is that you don't believe that it is as dangerous as being claimed? Okay, so 
nicotine vapes were invented 20 years ago. They kind of hit the market in the United States in uh, 2007 and ar around the world. And at this point, there are at least 85 million adult nicotine vapors around the world, hopefully uh, ex-smokers or on the journey. Uh, that's a lot of people. So surely if these are harmful products, uh, after there are some people who have been vaping for 15 years now, there there would be some deaths. So I offered $100, and that's uh, nearly two years ago now, right? Then there have been no takers. And other people started chiming in and saying, well, yeah, I'll, I'll put in 100 and And somebody else says, I'll put in 200 And so I kept tabs on that. I didn't do it. I did it in a very cumbersome way, just trying to use Twitter to help me keep track. So there's a long thread where I've kept track of them all. The offer is has now grown to $9,300 for anyone who can find uh, verified evidence of a single death ever caused by inhaling nicotine vapor. And there have been no takers. Charles, COP10 is coming up next month in Panama, the conference of the parties for the WHO's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. If you had an opportunity to send a message to delegates there, what would that message be? Here, we need to uh, reflect on, and I need to shout out to everyone in the tobacco harm reduction advocacy space all over the world, especially in Latin America for this coming event, but uh, Latin America, North America, Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, a lot of you know people who I, I know and love in those places, and all of us need to be reaching out to try to uh, influence the, the membership of, of those delegations to COP10. There should be a consumer advocate there. There should be someone who is uh, an informed, at least an informed ex-smoker who uses a safer nicotine alternative, whether it's snooze or pouches or vapes. Uh, and um, and some countries are trying to do this. That could begin to change the messaging. The, some countries like uh, the UK, New Zealand, um, Sweden, Norway, uh, Iceland even, um, and, and increasingly, although it's kind of a mixed message in Canada, Canada, you Canookers used to be really good guys at the at the cops. Uh, the those delegations need to stand up and say, eh, we think we think FCTC is going in the wrong direction here. It needs it needs a rethink uh, because you know harm reduction is part of the very definition of tobacco control, and five point three is not being interpreted according to the original intent of the signatories of the FCTC. And uh, what would I tell them? I would tell them that this whole process is off the rails, that there were 1.1 billion smokers on earth 20 years ago, and there are 1.1 billion smokers today. Whatever they're doing isn't working. Uh, and they should be looking to the countries where, you know, the World Health Organization and the FCTC congratulate themselves by measuring 
how many countries have conformed to what they call the empower guidelines or empower recommendations. So they're, they're measuring uh, what countries are doing to at least put on their books on their, and their laws, but a lot of countries can't enforce those laws. Um, they're not measuring or ranking countries by how rapidly their cigarette smoking is declining. And if they did that, they'd find Sweden, Norway, Iceland, Japan, um, smoking rates, New Zealand smoking rates, increasingly United States and the UK are plummeting. And there really looks like product substitution is the cause of that. Nobody, want, nobody in public health wants to admit that there might be product substitution going on here, just like digital cameras replace film cameras and electric cars are in the process of replacing combustion engine cars. Charles, let me ask you plainly, should nicotine be made legal for recreational use? Well, first of all, it's already legal. Cigarettes are available on every street corner in every country in the world. Uh, including even Bhutan now, where they used to be illegal. Um, and uh, so nicotine is legal, and it's on the World Health Organization's essential medicines list. And it's been authorized and approved by the Food and Drug Administration for smoking cessation for decades now. And we have very good post-marketing surveillance in the United States. It doesn't cause cancer, it doesn't cause heart disease, doesn't cause lung disease. And the thing is, we're going to have to grapple with the fact that uh, a lot of us enjoy our nicotine. The same way that I enjoy uh, you know, my morning cup of coffee, if you try to take that away from me, there's going to be a problem. And, uh, and there are at least 1.3 billion people on Earth using nicotine. Uh, that maybe alcohol, I don't know what the numbers are for alcohol, and caffeine. Caffeine is the most widely used psychoactive substance on Earth. It is used by 90% in, in some form or another, 90% of all adults on Earth. And it's a psychoactive drug. Uh, so the, the demonization of, of nicotine and, and people talking about the end game of tobacco control is to end all nicotine use is a pipe dream.